Episode 138, J.A. Adande from ESPN and Northwestern University. The beauty of podcasting in, in this stage, too, is that everyone's a Tony Reale or a Mike Greenberg now, right? <laughs> I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. If you'd prefer to watch a video of this episode, if you want a transcript or more, go to markraven.com slash mistake138. Thanks for listening. And now, J.A. Adande. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven, and our guest today is J.A. Adande. He is the Director of Sports Journalism at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, Media, Integrated Marketing Communications. He is also uh, the graduate journalism sports media specialization leader. J.A. earned his undergraduate degree in journalism from Medill in 1992. During his time in school at Northwestern, he was sports editor of the Daily Northwestern, the student newspaper. So before I tell you more about J.A., welcome to the podcast. How are you? Great. Thank you for having me and thank you for wearing your uh, Northwestern attire <laughs> to make me feel at home. My alma mater as well. I was a freshman when J.A. was a senior, so I was reading said newspaper, The Daily Northwestern, back when it was. Random question before we really get into it. Is there still a print edition on campus? Yes, there is. Um, I'm not sure they're printing every day, so the daily might not apply to the print. They're still, you know, hard at work cranking out stories all the time, but um, yeah, they, they, and COVID really accelerated the the diminished print product, but you still see a few around. Okay. But as we'll, I think, have a chance to talk about today, the, the art, the craft, the, the business of journalism, in some ways, the, the, the journalism work is the same as the business has changed. But speaking of changing um, with the business and doing different things, JA has worked in sports media for over two and a half decades, including multiple roles at ESPN. He continues to appear on ESPN's Around the Horn, where he's been a panelist since the show's beginning in 2002. He's covered virtually every major sporting event. Uh, He worked 10 years as a sports columnist at the LA Times, in addition to jobs at the Washington Post and Chicago Sun-Times. So as now a television professional, thank you for for coming on my little podcast. I'm no Tony Reale, um, but I think we'll we'll thank you for being here uh, anyway. uh, And thanks in advance. I I won't have the beeping for the points, um, but... (laughs) The beauty of podcasting in in this stage, too, is that everyone's a Tony Reale or a Mike Greenberg now, right? (laughs) Mike Greenberg, another Northwestern alum as well. So, um, Jay, with all the different things you've done in your career, I'm really curious to hear your story. Um, What would you say is your favorite mistake? My favorite mistake was thinking I could come in and be a, a columnist in Philadelphia at in my mid twenties, early twenties. Um, and it worked out in that it's, it's in this case, maybe we should call it my favorite rejection because I I didn't get it. Um, and in retrospect, it's the best thing that could have happened to me. So it, it was a mistake to maybe even go for it. 
because if I'd gotten it, um, I think I would have been in trouble. And I say I would have been in trouble because I would have been, and and I can understand this now. I was too blinded by my youth to understand it at the time. But to come in as an out-of-towner, outsider, um, into a market like Philadelphia, and um, to have the role of an opinion of a columnist right off the bat, where I have to start weighing in with my opinions and which coach should be fired and, you know, this guy should be traded and all the expectations that that position has, particularly that position in Philadelphia, where it's arguably the most demanding fan base in all of America. And they're tough on everyone that doesn't produce and players, coaches, and even media. (laughs) And so I just, looking back, I think if I had gotten it somehow and if I tried to come in there without really understanding what makes that town tick, you know, you can learn, you can come up to speed. Like I felt, even though I'm not a Chicago native, I feel like I adapted pretty quickly and understood what this city's about and what their fans value. Um, and I, I could have learned, but I'm not sure I would have been afforded the, the on-ramp, so to speak, to, to get up to speed and to learn that city. I'm not sure how patient they would have been with me since I was not one of their own. And I feel like it really could have been a setback. You know, maybe I get run out of town and where do I go from there? And does my ego recover in time? And does my reputation recover in time to enable me to have the type of career that I wound up having um, when I got rejected? So like I said, it's my favorite rejection, but I'll, 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 I'll take the blame of the mistake for even, even, uh, signing up for the interviews and applying for it. <laughs> so, I mean, what was the context at the time? Where were you working? Were you working as a reporter at that point? Yeah, I was reporter at the Washington Post. And I guess at that time I was still covering Georgetown. Uh, so again, I was in my mid-20s, three or four years out of school. And um, I had covered, uh, I started off covering college sports for the Chicago Sun-Times. And then my last year there, I covered the Bulls in 94, the year without Michael. Um, just my luck. I, I covered the one year in the 90s that Michael Jordan didn't play, the one full season they didn't play for the Bulls. Uh, that was the year I was covering them. But actually, I, I tell people it was a more interesting story that year. If if he had been there, the story would have been they won three, can they win four in a row? That, there's really not a lot of suspense either way, right? Um but this time's trying to see them, you know, make their way and seeing what they could do without Michael and really exceeding all expectations uh, without Michael Jordan made for a better story, more interesting story. So I was appreciative of that. Um, and then I left and, and got the job at, in Washington where I was for two years. And, and then I want to say it was 95 when the uh, Philly Daily News talked to me about the opening that they had for their columnist position. And at the the Washington Post, I mean, that was already a very prestigious sports department. The the one thing that um, reminded me or made me think to reach out to you about doing the podcast was seeing you being interviewed in the PTI 20 um, documentary about 20 years apart in the interruption. Michael Wilbon, Northwestern alum and uh, member of the Board of Trustees and Tony Kornheiser were several alums in that Washington Post sports department at the time. Yeah. The uh, Northwestern sports media mafia. Christine Brennan was another oh, prominent right. one who was yep. back then. So was it, 
I mean, at that young of an age, I mean, what was the progression normally for somebody to move from reporter to columnist? Would that have been unusual to do that in your mid-20s? It's very rare. And, you know, especially at a place like the Post, that didn't happen. And that was, you know, one of the reasons I wasn't long for there is because as fantastic as working at the Post was and as incredible the opportunities I had there, I knew I wasn't going to change in part because of Mike Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser and those guys, they weren't going anywhere. Thomas Boswell, you know, they had a great roster of columnists. They weren't going to bump any of them to make room for me. So, um, you know, I understood that. And I wasn't saying that they should have, um, but just in general, it was rare for young people to get columns in part because as Wilbon would say, you don't know enough, you know, uh, you know, you, 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 part of what you need for that job is perspective. Right. Um, and A, I didn't have it as a young person. B, I didn't have it as a non-Philadelphia person. So that would have made me a bad fit for that job. I didn't have perspective. You need perspective to be a columnist. Now, I wound up getting a columnist job at the LA Times, initially with the Orange County edition of the LA Times, um, at age 26, a year later. But I was a lot more confident and capable and qualified for that because I was from L.A., so I understood the history of the L.A. teams. I understood the nature of the L.A. sports fan. I could speak to them and for them. And, um, you know, that's why I really didn't have any qualms taking that. And it wasn't a mistake to take that, whereas it would have been a mistake to go and get a columnist job in Philly at that age. Yeah. So I'm curious at that time in the 90s when the Internet was barely getting started with newspapers going online. It was still very focused on print. And like, how would a paper like the Philadelphia Daily News or when you ended up at the LA Times, how would they gauge the popularity of a columnist? Um, letters to the editor. That was a big sense was, okay, is this person generating letters to the editor? We were in the era of sports talk radio. So I think, could you set the agenda in town? And a lot of the initial sports talk radio hosts were local newspaper columnists, right? Um, you know, here was a very, a format that lent itself to opinion almost from the get-go. Maybe it might not have initially, but very quickly, sports talk radio became the province of opinionated people. So here you had these people in those towns who were known for their strong opinions and who had a trusted base with the audience. So the sports columnists made for a lot of the, uh, a lot of the early candidates for sports talk radio. But the flip side was, as a columnist, you wanted to be the person that dictated what they were talking about. Um, here in Chicago, Jay Mariotti, I think, was great at that in the 90s. Like, he really set the agenda for what people were talking about. You turned on the early days of the score, WMVP, and, you know, some of the, we had three at one point sports talk stations in, in, in Chicago. Um, but a lot of times they'd be talking about what Jay Mariotti wrote that day that really, you know, angered people more, more often than not angry. <laughs> so when you talk about those letters to the editor, I mean, they say nowadays, let's say on YouTube with the algorithms, a thumbs down dislike is considered just as good as a thumbs up because it's a quote unquote engagement in terms of popularity and showing that to other people. Was uh, an angry letter to the editor at least proof that people were reading and they cared? Yeah. Um, one thing that changed with the internet though, was that at least people would read all the way through. <laughs> and I think the nature of, you know, the newspaper, especially, you know, broadsheet newspaper, your, your story would start on the front and then you'd get three or four paragraphs in and it would say, you know, turn to page 12 or whatever for the rest of the story. And 
you could tell people read the headline and maybe the first couple mm. paragraphs and that they didn't jump inside to read the rest of the story. Cause I'd get these things like, how can you say that, you know, this, that, the other. And I'd say, well, I addressed that later in the column. You obviously didn't read. <laughs> and then in the internet era, when you started getting angry emails, but they would say, you know, in the last line of your column, you said this. And I'm thinking you read to the last line. That's great. Like at this point, I don't care if you liked it or disliked it. The fact that you read to the last line and you were so engaged that you sent me an email. And that was the thing it was email made it a lot easier. So letters were a truer test of a, who was reading and B who really cared to respond to you. Um, to write a letter was a commitment to send off an email. Wasn't as much of a commitment. So you took that a little bit like, okay, on the one hand, you're seeing, you're getting, you know, maybe a better sense of who's engaging, what they're thinking and how much they're reading. But it's also like the, the, the barrier is lower. So therefore, like, okay, they might not be that invested as much as a reader who writes you a letter was invested. Well, and then you have, you know, the social media age. And I mean, there's, I imagine back when it was a letter to the editor, I don't know if there was a bit of a filter or like nowadays, whether someone well, there was up, there was literally an a, a editor who edited the letter to the editor, right? Yeah. So yeah, so there'd be a filter in, into what would get into the paper. Right? Well, but I was thinking in terms of a filter of what made it to your eyes, because if somebody finds an email address or they're in your mentions on social media, there could be not just dis- disagreement, but insults or really you know offensive stuff that that shows up. That seems like now suddenly like this big intrusion that maybe wouldn't have been part of the job at some. Yes and no, because, um, you know, as anonymous as the Internet is, um, they can still track you, you know, if you send an email. Um, And especially, I think, in the early days, like, I don't know if people were even thinking about setting up some anonymous account. Right. Um, But even if they did, you know, you could get IP addresses, um, but you could be anonymous through the mail. And so you get these letters and this thing like like when you get like the really angry racist letters. Like they all had the same handwriting. It was like this chicken scratch, all caps. There'd be no return address. You know, like I said, all capital letters. And I swear to God, they all look like the exact same handwriting, you know, and ultimately you'd see that they were different people, but it was like the same feeble chicken scratch, all capital letter writings. And you don't even, you came to realize even before you open it up, like, okay, this is going to be one of those racist emails because they all had the exact or racist letters, I should say, because they all had the exact same type of handwriting. <laughs> Gosh. Um, is that something that, you know, as you work with students now at Medill, um, is this talked about, like kind of bracing yourself for feedback or hate, um, whether you're writing in a local paper or you're on the worldwide, worldwide leader of sports, ESPN, um, or is that just through hard knocks? On one hand, maybe I should do more to brace them for the hate. <sighs> like they, they might have no idea. Um, I don't talk about that. I, I talk about well, A, I tell them to to ignore anything that doesn't have a name attached to it. I like to say that nothing is more meaningless to me than anonymous opinion. So um, it's easier to ignore um, because it's just some made up screen name. Um, and I also think that they're used to it. They grew up online like we we you know came online and, and adjusted to being online and, and learned to adapt to the online rules. People that are coming up now that, you know, that made it to my class, they've had a good decade. They've been raised on social media. So I think they're fully aware of the toxicity that can exist there. 
So in that sense, I don't think I need to educate them. They could probably educate me a little bit better. And mm-hmm. um, either they get hardened to it or, um, you know, they're the, the flip side is they might absorb it. You, you get the sense that young people assess more of their self-worth based on social media, which is a problem. Um, so you, you actually, you know, I, I, I give a lecture on social media. One thing that's changed about what I do is that I remember when I first started adding social media to my courses and it would kind of come at the end. And now it's one of the first lectures I do because um, social media is just that important and that prominent. Um, but maybe, maybe I need to teach them in part that a, you can survive this and B maybe what are some survival tactics? Like one thing I say is I, I just pretty much disable my mentions and replies to, or limited and filter it to it's where it's only people that I follow and reply to me, or at least, or, or their replies will be seen by me. Um, and again, cause if, if I wanted your opinion, I would follow you. <laughs> Let's say if uh, Christine Brennan replies to you on Twitter, you you care what she I'll has see to it, say. Right. And it would be intelligent. If Joe five seven three eight two one with the you know American Eagle mm-hmm. uh avatar. Um I'm probably not gonna see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you talk about um social media and uh, likes and clicks, and one one thing I've heard on your friend Dan Lebitard's show. Uh, you probably know Greg Cody from the Miami Herald, mm-hmm. who's on there every week. And, and he talks about, or they razz him, but it seems like the reality of clicks being everything. And they sort of razz him for, for sort of, you know, begging for clicks. And it sounds like now with internet news, um, so much is measurable. Does that affect the way a reporter or a columnist does their job, I wonder? Well, here's the thing. You might not care, but People that pay you probably do. Yeah. And it's gotten to the point that, you know, I remember there were places at ESPN and I'm aware of other outlets where they've done this, where there's a screen in the building showing, okay, what's getting the most traffic, which stories are doing the best and and engaging the readers the most. So um, if they're keeping score, (laughs) you want to win or at least be up on the board. Uh, So it, it has to matter. It better matter. And there are tactics you can use to promote your stories to get more clicks. Um, there are ways you can write, you know, a good, great headline will help. You know, your editors can help you out by writing a good headline that will get more clicks. Um, but I always say, and this is partly in nature, the nature of where I worked at the LA Times, where they wouldn't like they wouldn't write a synopsis or, or a tease for your story. They would just take the first line or two of your story. And that would be under the headline. And basically the decision to click or not to click was based on the lead to your story. And so that forced me to change how I write where I really have to, I have to turn the, you know, the, the intro to my story into a, a synopsis of the story, right? I, I got to entice the reader. I've got one, I view it as I've got one sentence to get you in the tent. Whereas when I used to write for the newspaper and you'd have, you'd have those three or four paragraphs before the jump. I used to really feel like I had three or four paragraphs. So it was a more leisurely, um, more measured and arguably maybe more boring um, introduction into the column. Now, whereas now I just jump right in. I, I literally just gave a yes- lecture yesterday where I stressed to my students as I continuously do though to, you know, you've got one sentence, I think, to grab them.
it's funny. I, I just saw uh, ESPN put out an update. They they had their highest viewership for Get Up and for First Take uh, this Monday after the Cowboys. Not only did the Cowboys, so A, you had the Cowboys. B, you had the Cowboys losing. <laughs> C, you had them losing in this, you know, incredible fashion. And yeah. for our purposes, debatable fashion, right? Like yeah. that was just rich material. The way that ended by that decision to do a draw play and try to, mm-hmm. you know, spike the ball in time to get one more playoff and just how calamitous it turned out. And the fact that it was the Dallas Cowboys, that was the perfect mix and recipe for a highly rated show <laughs> on Monday. Yeah. Um, one other question for you, I mean, uh, on the topic of TV, um, when, when you shifted um, into television, um, I mean, I, I'm curious how that was at first, were there ever days where it felt like that was a mistake? You know, you, you, did you define yourself as a writer? And this was too different, or I'm, I'm just curious how. Yeah, that we all thought of ourselves as writers, and to be honest, that's what they valued for. They valued us for our our not the writing necessarily, but the ability to formulate an argument. You know, that's why you saw a lot of columnists populate these shows. Was you know we've proven that okay, we could make an argument and have a debate, um, but we had to learn television, and it was go back and look at some of those early around the horns, and it was pretty rough. Uh, you know, we were, we were a bunch of writers on television. We weren't TV people. We were writers on television. Um, but what I always say is that you can learn to do the TV. Um, I think easier than you can learn how to be, you know, a good journalist. And that doesn't mean that I think that anyone can be Bob Costas or Mike Tirico or any of the highly, highly skilled, very talented people at the top of the TV profession. No, that's rarefied air. Um, but you can become proficient enough. Um, you can learn the TV aspects of it, I think, a lot easier than you can learn what it takes to be a good journalist. Now, was there a process? There's probably a difference in laying out this argument in 800 or 1,000 words, like I said, a little bit more leisurely versus the quote-unquote hot take. Like, Is that something you had to get better at? Yeah, you have, you have to get to the point. Um, but again, that can translate into, you can take that back to your writing. And I think writing has changed now where you need to get to the point earlier. You, you know, people aren't, people were reading, they're reading in the newspaper and then on the internet, initially they're reading on a desktop and that's just a different manner of consumption than the way people read now, which is on their phones as they're scrolling through their phones. So you have to, even in the writing written format, you got to be able to jump out to somebody that's just taking their phone and scrolling through. And then, um, uh, you know, in terms of hot take, um, you know, I, I, I will say I had any, you know, Nobody's ever got to be take here, but um, I had an ESPN executive come to me early on, like, you know, we need like need your informed opinion, you know, like like he really he wanted smart takes more than hot takes, you know, but but he wanted very opinionated. But, you know, to show off your education and show that you knew what you were talking about, but match that with, you know. Don't be on the fence. You got to really dedicate to one way or another. So I imagine that, that doesn't mean I, I got to clarify. Nobody ever told me what to say, but I will say they the one time they weighed in it was, was how to say it. You know, so you don't want to be wishy washy. But I think there's a perception out there that people, are, oh, you just take this side because ESPN orders you to say this, or ESPN hates this team, so or they hate this city, so they want people to be negative. No, they never tell us what to say, but I will say that they would say the manner in which you say it. Um, there's a formula that works on television. And there's probably something to be said for being succinct. Maybe the nuance gets lost, but like you said, things that are debatable, should they have run that play or not? Did the ref screw up? Did Dak Prescott screw up? There were so many 
aspects to the end of uh, that Cowboys game where, you know, it would be easy to have different sides. And as they say on first take, if this is still the tagline, embrace debate. (laughs) But also you have to recognize that the the different shows are have different formats and different styles and paces. So on around the horn, you don't have a lot of time and it's really not set up for nuance. You know, PTI is more conversational. So you don't necessarily have to take a side. It can be a conversation. It doesn't have to be an argument. First take is more conversation, but you have a lot more time. You have, you know, the way first take is set up now, you've got these lengthy segments where you can really get into depth. So you can have in-depth conversation. It's not superfluous. It's not just off the top. Um, the one thing about around the horn, believe it or not, is it's actually easiest to get your take in unfiltered because when you're talking, it's just you and you can go whatever direction you want. And PTI they want you to follow the conversation. So you might have an excellent point that you prepared to make, but the conversation goes in a different direction and you never get to make it. And around the horn, if you really have something you want to say and you, you know, readied yourself to say it, you're going to get to say it. Yeah. Well, uh, J.A., maybe a couple um, questions while I've got you. I'm just curious a little bit about, you know, the, the, the craft of journalism. Um, I, I was uh, editor of the high school paper. Um, growing up and um, always enjoyed writing, even though my career took um, a, a different path away from journalism. But when you think of um, you know reporting and you know, you know having multiple sources, getting things right, there's so much emphasis on, on that, of course. Nowadays, is there more pressure to be first, and and does that cause challenges if if you're thinking being first, being right? How how do you do both? There is more pressure. Um... There's also more penalty for being wrong. So the old adage, I'm sure you heard it, you know, it's better to be right than to be first. Um, It still applies as much as ever. Um, Yeah, there's more rewards for being first. You know, if if you can continuously be the first one and have a reputation for that. Um, But it hasn't changed the need to double check. Um, You know, if anything, it's forced more scrutiny, I think. I would say the problem is there are fewer layers and there's less filtering. And in particular, if you're going to try to tweet something out and you don't have an editor that can at the very least proofread it, but, um, but secondarily can maybe help push you and challenge you to make sure you have it right, to question the source and the agenda of the source, um, to apply logic, to make sure, does this really make sense? sense now could this really happen you know sometimes you need somebody to be a little skeptical Mm -hmm. um so what i worry about is how much pushback people have and so much of the newsbreakers now are just doing it straight to twitter and the problem with that is you're not getting any pre-publication feedback and and critical assessment and and the longer bigger investigative pieces have not just editors but in a lot of cases lawyers involved yeah before something goes to print lawyers get in and and you know, we all hate having our stories vetted by lawyers. We hate having our stories edited, period, right? But sure. um, it can really save you. And a good editor can make it there. That, that's one thing that really stands out about the Washington Post, especially the editing was so good that I got there that helped me grow as a journalist. And, and I just worry about a lot of people that go out either starting on their own or starting at these smaller sites and you don't get edited. Um, again, as much as we say we hate editing as a writer by, by nature, um, there's a lot of value to having a good editor. Yeah. Uh, a good editor is like a coach who's helping you continue your development. Or a safety net. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. You know, if I jump out of a building, you know, I want the equivalent of a safety net. And, you know, every time you write, every time you put your byline out there, in some ways you're jumping out of a building, you're putting your reputation on the line. Mm-hmm. So maybe the final question when it comes to mistakes, um, you know, again, even though I, I was not a student in the Medill School, um, even just knowing uh, journalists or, or being around you, you hear reference to the Medill F. <laughs> is that is that a real practice? And it's can, a thing. Yeah. Tell us about that. It might not actually be an F, you know, <laughs> might be a D uh, in practice, but the Medill F is based on um, uh, the need for factual accuracy. And so if there is a factual error, um, you know, a name is wrong, a date is wrong, a figure is wrong. You know, some, if there's something that can be checked that's a factual error, proper noun, um, if you get that wrong, you fail the assignment, automatic F um, or C or D. Um, and it's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's legendary. It's funny, there's a, there's a uh, listserv among us that's called the Medill F, uh, <laughs> the nod to, to the Medill F. Um, I'm very proud that there's Medill F. Like you don't hear um, other schools that have that F attached to their name. And it speaks to the standards that um, Medill has held traditionally. And, um, you know, it's not an expectation everybody's going to be perfect. Um, you don't get an F for a typo, um, but you do get an F if you misspelled somebody's name. Um, and the goal is to instill that dread, that fear, that um, sick pit in your stomach um, from making a mistake and having it get to print. Um, I instilled the Medill F unilaterally <laughs> when I was teaching at USC. Uh, you know, they didn't have the, the policy, but uh, I mandated in my class, factual errors were failed assignment. And the best reward was I had a, a student who was, uh, she was in PR. She went into PR eventually, but she told me that I still like double check everything the names. I want to make sure, you know, I still remember you would give me an F if, if I got it wrong. And, you know, I can still, and like, that's the goal is you want to haunt these students for the rest of their lives, <laughs> you know, when it comes yeah. to making mistakes and, and it's working. That's, yeah. that's the intention is to make you so afraid to make a factual error that you double and trick every double and triple check everything. Um, so it doesn't happen and again. We're, we're all going to make mistakes, but, um, you want to minimize it. And most importantly, you want to instill the fear of making a mistake so that you, you know, you really, really force people to be careful. Well, there, there was one story I mentioned Greg Cody earlier. Uh, it was a bonus episode of uh, this podcast where uh, he recorded and shared a story when he was working as a reporter in Miami back during the, the Falklands War. So this is going back a while. And a professional soccer player there told him a, a tale about um, some family members involved in fighting in the Falklands War. And I, he took it on face value. I guess there was no second source. He didn't go check with mm-hmm. any of the governments or militaries and he printed it. And it turned out it was all just uh, made up hogwash. And, wow. and, you know, I think the player was just pulling a joke on him or so he thought, but, but Greg <laughs> said that to your point, that dread, that fear, he said something like, if someone says their name is Smith, I double check how they spell Smith or to that extreme. Well, I'll tell you a, a, mis- a mistake, you know, to get to the nature of your podcast. I mean, I, I was thinking of having this be the main one, but I, somewhat common, though. Um, and, and that was, <sighs> I, I, I wrote a 
story. There was an indoor soccer coach in Orange County um, whose father died and his players urged him to um, keep coaching. You know, he wanted to step away and, and uh, they were like, we need, and they thought it'd be better. So he coached for them and, and um, uh, you know, and he wanted to do it as a tribute to his dad. So I wrote the story and I, I, th- I felt like I did a good job, you know, telling his story and I tried to, you know, add a human touch to it. And um, he called me the coach and he was like, that's a very nice story about my dad, but um, I forget those exact names, but he goes, you know, his name was Steve and you called him Dave. Oh. <laughs> you know? uh, and I used the wrong name for his dad. And yeah. I just got in it when I was writing it, it just was, you know, Dave was in my head yeah. or whatever the name was, you know? And, and um, I, I just, I was so convinced I was right. I didn't double check it. Mm-hmm. And I had to write that, uh, you know, the editor called, I was like, how did this happen? I was like, I just, I thought I was right. That's not good enough. Yeah. Well, I thought I was right. No, that wasn't good enough. I thought I was right. And I didn't, I trusted myself. That was my mistake was I trusted myself. You should never trust yourself. Unless you're a Northwestern football player and they have that board that says, trust yourself on it. They, uh, <laughs> Even then. Uh, <laughs> well, J.A., thank you for, for being um, a guest today and for sharing um, some of your stories and, and your thoughts and insights. Um, again, we've been joined by J.A. Adande. We talked a lot about ESPN, but again, he's currently Director of Sports Journalism at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. And um, really, really appreciate you making the time and being on here today. And uh, we can say, go Cats. Go cats. (laughs) As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.